Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. How you doing, everyone? I'm Russ Salzberg, and I want you all to listen up and get a load of this. Joining me is one of the great newspaper men to ever cover the streets of this city. I'm talking about Dennis Hamill. So what you've got here are two Brooklyn guys just hanging out, sitting on a stoop, and shooting a breeze. So like I said, listen up, because you're really going to want to get a load of this. All right. As I said, one of the great newspaper men to ever cover the streets of this city. And I am not just saying this. Dennis Hamill just had a knack, uh, as did his older brother, Pete Hamill, just knowing how to deal with the people. He's a Brooklyn guy, just like myself. And then it is a pleasure to have you here with me today. Well, this is terrific to be here. Thank you so much. Well, listen, and, you know, one of the reasons that I I wanted to start talking with you just because and I should also say, folks, you know, Dennis, from from listen, from all the great work he did with the New York Daily News. But because he's no longer with the news, which is their numbskull uh, ideas, but uh, you can still get them if you look online at the East Hampton Independent and his work is not as good. It's better than ever. So having said that, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you flat out, what the hell has happened to our industry? And when I say our industry, you're from the print side. I'm from the electronic side. And a lot of it has gone, for lack of a better term, to the shit house. It sure has, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, no longer making the focus on local news. I think that we learned this business by covering the city that we grew up in, and <clears throat> for us, it was the capital of the world. So we covered everything we did was a national or an international story because it was New York. But we went out into the streets, into the neighborhoods, and we covered the. A place that has 8 million people and 183 different uh, ethnic groups and uh, or, or nationalities and different races and religions. It's the most diverse city in the world. Uh, and then we flattened it out into a, um, a way of covering news that with clicks and the Internet to make everything sound like area code 800. You know, it doesn't, you lost all the local flavor. You lost, uh, you know, I always said about Brooklyn that it lost its character when it lost its characters. When people who could, who could, could no longer afford to live there had to pack up and leave because the rents went through the roof from gentrification, you lost the, the, the magic of the place. Um, but I do think that, you know, uh, Getting back to basics and covering local news first, because all politics is local. I mean, <clears throat> all crime is local, and you know, all education and health is local. So when you cover a, the way I used to cover a city like New York uh, for a, a newspaper like the Daily News, you really spoke to the common person who were dealing with these bread and butter issues. And we got we've lost that. It's now a divided country where you have. Red and blue restaurants, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, we're going to get to water fountains. Well, we're laughing, but it's no joke. That's exactly what you do have right now. I mean, it's it's preposterous. So I, you know, you can't have, you can't. You used to be able to have a lively debate in a in a barroom and uh, or you know or a laundromat or or. Uh, 
a hairdresser in uh, in the city, but now that that can uh, dissolve into a into a fist fight and a brawl. Well, you know? having said that, you, you know, fist fight and a brawl, and you, you also said mentioned blue and red restaurants. You know, the one thing and uh, that I find in the media, and I think you feel the same way. Listen, you could be a liberal, I could be a conservative, which I'm not. But you can be Republican. I can be Democrat. You're, you're like a moderate. You, you, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. But what what I'm saying to you is what I'm finding in the media today. That includes your end, the print end. I'm including my end, the electronics end. And that's where I think the media is making. A, first of all, I don't like the media is not the enemy. We we know that's nonsense. But I think a lot of the problem with the media today is. Much like the public, they write or report with an agenda as opposed to just giving it a straight story. Well, I think that's certainly the case in on on TV and cable news. It, it's it's gone into you know uh, you know uh, opposite corners, like in a, in a boxing ring, you know, where we actually have a red and a blue corner. <laughs> but but I don't. I I think in in the mainstream newspapers. There's still some really excellent reporting going on, and I and I don't mean I mean a lot of people accuse the New York Times of just being a liberal bastion, but they go through acres of of levels of of uh, editing and vetting there when they get their sources, and those sources are not coming from from the left. Most of the leaks they're getting are coming from inside the White House and from inside the administration. So the stuff that you've been reading in the Washington Post and the New York Times, who each won a Pulitzer Prize this year uh, for their reporting out of Washington, <clears throat> most of that reporting is based on people that are part of the current administration. You can't blame the reporters. You can't shoot the messenger for bringing you the news. You just cannot do that. And it, and it, most of this stuff has stood up. To label, it the, to label it as fake news and to start calling reporters the enemy of the people is dangerous uh i think it has created a climate i don't i don't point blame at, a, at, at donald trump or this administration for for the uh, the shootings in, in in annapolis two weeks ago where the brother of a good friend of mine was was murdered in a newsroom but it certainly <clears throat> they have responsibility for the climate they have created. They have tr- tried to demonize the news and the reporters that collect it uh, as somehow enemies of the United States of America. Nothing could be further from the truth. Getting back to what we were talking about, you, you made a comment before. Brooklyn's character changed when it lost its characters. I never wanted to be, I never wanted to be one of those guys who, as I got older, said, in my day, it was better. (laughs) But I'm telling you, in my day, Brooklyn was better. There was something, as I opened up saying, you and I are sitting here, going to be two guys sitting on a stoop, just shooting a breeze. There were characters at every corner, right. be it the corner candy store, the luncheonette, wherever it was, there were characters. and It was it, magical in that way. It, it was magical. And, the, you know, there's this, what we're missing, and well, when, I, when I was growing up in Brooklyn, it was before everybody had air conditioning. The only place that had air conditioning when I was growing up was the movie house where my mother was a cashier. Well, yeah. I, I know I was growing up in a housing project. There certainly wasn't central air or central vacuum. <laughs> and I lived in a housing project, too. I most, most of the, Mostly in a tenement. Then we moved up in the world to a housing project where there were elevators and bedrooms with doors on <laughs> and a shower. <laughs> so we thought we were moving up in the world when we moved to the project because there was heat all the time and hot water. But... um but, but what happened in the streets of Brooklyn was people, when it got unbearably hot, we used to sleep out on the fire escape because it was cool. We used to put blankets on the fire escape and sleep out there and or up on the roof or where there was a pigeon coop and pebbles and all that. And, or, and then at nighttime, people would take folding chairs and milk boxes and go and sit outside their, their tenement or on their stoops. And people would gather and just gab and talk. And it was a wonderful place, and everybody knew all the neighbors, and they they all either liked or didn't like each other. But they and there were cliques, yes, there were. 
but the streets were filled with people. And there was a, a, a famous uh, urbanologist named Jane Jacobs in the Greenwich Village, and she wrote a great book called The Life and Death of American Cities, where she talked about the density of people on the streets keep the city safe. And there used to be all these people out. It was impossible to commit a crime. There were all those people out in the streets sitting on milk boxes and their kids were playing Ring Alivio and they were, you know. Johnny on the pony. And, and what, listen, I know when I was a kid and I'm talking about eight years old. No, nine years old. We moved into the projects from the Bronx when I was nine years old. Summertime, you went down in the morning, roughly 730 you stayed down till 12 o'clock, noontime. You went up for lunch. Then I came down at 20 to 1. Charlie, the ice cream guy, was coming by okay. ringing the bell. We got our ice cream. Then we stayed out till about 5, 5.30. My old man would whistle from the window to come, right. up, to come up for dinner. We had supper for uh, an hour, went back down till it was dark, and that was it. And you know what? There was no phones. Nobody was looking for you. No. It just changed. There was no such thing as a play date. My old man's idea of a play date was get out and don't come back till dinner. And that and that meant that we were out playing stickball off the point. And when what happened was that when you saw all those kids playing stickball, playing punchball, playing street games, they weren't doing very glorious. They weren't doing dope. They weren't doing anything but hanging out. We would sit on stoops when in between games and share sodas. And we would look at, look at the big buildings across the river and dream about going to Manhattan when we grew up. That was Oz. And every parent knew wh- whose kid was whose kid, Absolutely. who belonged to who. And it was almost like every parent, listen, if my kid gets out of line, if Dennis gets out of line or Russ gets out of line, you want to give him a boot in the ass. Or That's the way it was. It, it, it just it was different. It, you know what? You know, th- this nut that we saw uh, on the subway recently you know, uh, yeah, hit somebody with a pipe. I remember, and I think I, I, I've spoken about this with you, you know, privately. I was nine years old. I got on a bus, took the 36 Surf Avenue bus to the Sheepshead Bay Station. I got on the train and met my father because somebody gave him freebie tickets up at the Bronx to go to a Yankee game. Okay. I mean, this was before the Mets came. To town, so it was up going to a Yankee game, and it was like, huh? Think about that. And 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 here was a nine year old kid traveling From Brooklyn going to a Yankee game was... in the Bronx, and that was the norm. It wasn't like my parents were like you know being casual about my safety. All kids did that. That 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 was the norm. Now, I mean, you you. What what is it? Uh, <clears throat> carpooling? You're taking your kid to school to go ten blocks. I, I mean, it, it's just different. It's just a completely different city, and yet the the crime rate is is as low as it was when we were kids. And and a lot of it is the hysteria that's created by cable news and the, and the 24 hour news cycle. We got one news cycle, two two news cycles a day. The late box scores and the, <laughs> and the morning paper. We got the paper. We everybody used to come out at night to look, wait for the daily news. In the evening, uh, you, 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 I went. You, people waited for the more the early daily news at late at night, and I couldn't wait because I was an L.A. Dodgers fan before the Mets came yeah. into being, and you know the Colfax Dodgers were my Dodgers. So you'd wait for the Post, which was the afternoon paper. That's you'd right. wait for the Post to get the box scores. <clears throat> That's exactly right because they didn't come in, and it was a, it was a completely different city, and we had. We had an infinite amount of fun. I mean, it was just... Uh, well, let me ask you this then, Dennis, as a newspaper man. You, you kind of touched on it. Uh, you beat me to it. Um, there's almost too much news today. And because there's almost too much news with all the cable stations and, and social media as well, do you think there's a situation where people are just rushing to be first to get it out. Well, listen, we all want to break stories, but you think there's a rush to get it first as opposed to being the rush to get it right? No, I agree with that. I, I, I think there's <clears throat> that that whole that whole um, uh, rush to get it out first is, is, is crazy, and it's a stampede, and people it makes people very nervous, and they go with, with stories that are half cooked sometimes, and uh, and you have to play catch up ball on it later because of that because of that panic. 
<clears throat> and then they also want national stories. I mean, you know, I once we would like the Daily News went online, they wanted stories that people around the country and the world were going to click on. They weren't going to click on the pizzeria being driven out of business by gentrification in in uh, Sunset Park. They weren't going to click on that. They're mm-hmm. going to click on Kardashian or Kardashian's ass all of a sudden became, you know, the big uh, big clickbait in the country. And, you, you, you know, I wasn't going to write about that kind of stuff. I mean, I had no interest in it. And gossip, so gossip sort of dominated hard news. And the reason why the, the Trump administration has uh, been covered in, in an endless loop constantly, every hour on the hour, is because he comes out of reality television. Without question. And so that he, he even designs his day like a, like a, like a television show, you know. I mean, and the way he unveiled a Supreme Court judge was almost like, you know, naming who the, who the survivor or who the, who's going to be left on the island in Survivor. It's like, it's crazy. And so that it becomes, uh, it becomes like a, a, a TV performance, like a TV show instead of a presidency. And and then, you know, there's people that, that take sides, like they do the Mets and the Yankees. And, and some people, there's just such division. I've never seen anything like it. Well, I, you know, you talk about the division. Uh, <clears throat> last week, I was promoting my podcast. Right. So, and I just told people, you know, check it out. I'm going to be talking about this today. And... That's all I did. And then I looked on Facebook and the vitriol that was going on back and forth, just, oh, is Russ going to be, is it going to be to the right? Is it going to be to the left? I criticized, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I criticized Peter Fonda for what he said. I mean, you know, paraphrasing now, Baron Trump ought to be ripped from his mother's arms and put in a cage with pedophiles. Now, there I is w- no right and left on that. You see, thank you. I would not. I would criticize. Right or wrong. I would criticize anybody for saying that. And I said Fonda ought to be taken in to a dark alley in the street and have his teeth kicked in. The vitriol that I received on Facebook. Why are you picking on him? Who cares what he says? So when I say, well, who cares what he said? Did you say the same thing about Roseanne Barr or, or would a dope Kathy Griffin, which both of them got what they deserved? But there's no there's not a wrong and a right. There's strictly wrong with that business. Right. And, and but the left looks at it one way. The right looks at it another way. And quite frankly, I'm sick to my stomach over it. Yeah, you and, and it's I, actually you and I grew up in the '60s, so we know what division's about. But I have never seen a division like I see it in this country today. But you know what? In the in the when I was coming up in journalism, that wouldn't have even meant, made news. I mean, it, it would have been a blip. I mean, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't waste the ink on it because it was insignificant. Who who would have given a shit about what Peter Fonda had to say, or or Roseanne Barr or any of these people? Because but social media has taken it to a new level. People cover. Tweets, I mean, it's 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 insane. They don't cover events. They they cover tweets. Not only do they cover tweets, I'm sure the the, the editors sitting in a newspaper. I I've seen it being in a TV newsroom. Somebody tweeted out, and you're going chasing your tail over over a tweet. It's insane. I mean, you took you, you know. I, I still teach. I, I teach uh, journalism at Brooklyn College, and and I still encourage students that there's no. There's no substitute for a good pair of shoes, good pair of walking shoes for a reporter. Where you go in person to show up, take a look, talk to people, write down what you see, what you hear, what you, what you smell, and and especially what people say and what what the scene looks like. Knock on doors, climb extra flights of stairs, make the extra phone call, go to a neighbor, and then you know you, if you if you if you're a good reporter, you're going to bring the reader. You are. There used to be a great show called You Are There. Remember that? Yeah, sure. But that's because somebody. Uh, my job is to go and gather the news and present it in a in a readable, entertaining story that's also informative to all the people that do other jobs for a living who are reading the daily news on the subway on the way to work. 
And we're losing that, that common thread where people were, were getting reports from people that they could rely on. It didn't matter what people, whether people agreed with my politics. They knew I would go places and look at things. So even people who didn't, didn't agree with my politics would read my column because they knew there was an authenticity to it. I grew up in the city. I, I spoke the same idiom. I knew the slang and, the, and I knew the, the back alleys and, the, and I knew the cops and the neighbors and the bartenders and the people in the neighborhood. I knew how to speak to them. And I would bring you the news that they could rely on. Let, let me stop you right there. You just said something. I knew how to speak with them. Yeah. I mean, has is that a lost art? Because I that's what I'm finding. Yeah. People, people, I'll give you another example. Kids ask me about advice, you know, in the business, getting into the business. So I, I always say, I use the term, just what you said. What did you say about the shoes? You got a comfortable pair of shoes. shoes. Yeah. Okay. I, shoes. I, I always say... You got to go knock at doors and you got to right. get your foot in the door. And they say to me, well, I, I sent it out, uh, my resume by email. And I go, yeah. Well, do you follow it up with a phone call and go knock at the door? Well, no. You're a person. Let them know who the hell you yes, are. Exactly. Don't say this is the rule that this is how we do it now by email. Go Knock at the door. Let them know who that person is. Show them your aggressiveness. Show them that you give a shit, that you care. Yeah, especially about yourself. Yeah. And, that, and that you and that you have personality and that you have some balls, that you're going to go out and, do it and present yourself. You're going to sell yourself and you're going to be that aggressive for the company. So you, you need to do that. But when you ask me when, how, how do you speak to people in the journalism class, my advice to all, the, all these young kids is, don't go up with a notebook and start, jam, and start asking people personal questions. Start it with a conversation. Leave the notebook in your pocket for a minute. Then start talking to them about things that they are experts on, their, their jobs and their kids. Do, and then when you were talking about an event that happened on their block, did you know, hey, you know what? Did you see what happened down the block the other day where it was a, these people had a fight and it spilled out into the gutter? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you mind talking to me? I work for the Daily News, and I, you know I'm here trying to find that out. Then they feel comfortable with you. They then trust you, take, you. I said, do you mind if I write down, take your name, and, and ask you some quotes? I'll, I'll talk to you, but I don't want to use my name. Okay, I won't use your name, but just give me your first name. All right, give me your first name. By the end of the by the end of the conversation, they say, you know what? You can use my name because they trust you. And, you know, but if they don't know who you are, and you come off like some kid out of out of a an Ivy League J school, and you know you're dressed with a bow tie and, you, and a pair of you know of Gucci loafers. They're not gonna they're not, not gonna feel comfortable. They want with you to you. be a real person. They want you to they want you to, they want to be able to identify with you. you the, the biggest compliment that I get in the business when when people meet me, they go, you know, Russ, you're really like you are on TV. Yeah. You, you you're like a you are a regular guy. And I my answer always to that is, well, what the hell am I supposed to be? Yeah. <laughs> but but listen, and, and and I'm the first one to say it. You know, a lot of people, especially on the TV end of the business, are the blow dry. You know, but that goes for male and female. Mm -hmm. And you, you got to be a real person. You got to talk to people. Absolutely, and you know that's what and that's what people identify with, and, <clears throat> and that's what will make them return to your byline. And we're losing, just like we're losing the characters in. In the, in the places like Brooklyn, and that therefore we're losing the character. When you have newspapers that no longer have a Jimmy Breslin or a Pete Hamill. Or, or a Dennis Hamill. Don't sell yourself I, short, buddy. People that would go to you because you were a personality and that you, you gave them some flavor. Even if they didn't agree with you, sometimes people would read me just to feed their rage. That's okay. I listen to talk radio all the time. <laughs> I, I sit in the car by myself screaming at the radio, but I, you know, and I put on Fox News to drive myself crazy too, but because, but I also want to hear the other side of the story. So I, 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 I appreciate that and people like that about me. And then if they meet me, the, the, most of them say, you know what, I don't always agree with you, but I, I, you know, at least you go out and cover the stories and you do show up. And, that, and that's the one thing that I, I prided myself on is that I didn't sit on my ass in the newsroom because there are no st new stories in the newsroom. I went out into the city. I almost never went to the newsroom. I would go out in different places, talk to people, cover events. Talk to people live the way you wanted me to come in person today into that, the, into that, the studio. Exactly what I say. I said, Dennis, it's listen, a different we, dynamic. We can do it on the phone, but if you come in 
It's different. We're sitting looking at each other. I'm looking at you. And I'm reading. You're reading body language. Right. You're looking at each other's eyes. We're making each other laugh. We smile. We, we, you know, we use hand gestures. It's a different. It's a different thing. And when you show up, and people feel that you have sh- taken the effort to go and travel to their neighborhood, to their street, to their address, and talk to them in their corner saloon, they like that. They think that they that you care about them, and they, and then they'll open up to you. That's and that's the kind of journalism we're missing. Now, 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 you and I were brought up. We're the same age. You, you and I were brought up at a different era, where it, it, you say characters. We were characters, and we all knew, as most people did from our era, the art of schmoozing. Be able to sit, as I say, and shoot the breeze. And I'm wondering. If that is becoming a lost art. People do it online now. They do it on Facebook. They do it on Twitter. They do it on Snapchat. And so they don't see each other. But we used to sit on a stoop right next to each other. And that's where guys and girls would would meet and, you know, and, and, and date and do that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess it's now true. they exchange photographs. <laughs> and I don't know what they do. They say, we're not going out. We're talking to each other. So I, I don't understand all of it, you know. But that's because I'm getting old. I mean, I'm already old. But um, but they just do it in social media, and it can't be as much fun, right? I, I, to me, I used to go. I used to watch, love to watch Danny Aiello when he had, he had always had an expensive Cadillac. If he would park it on the street, he would get out of the car and yell up to the roof, up to the top floor, Angelo, keep an eye on the car. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Because you might want to make, let the people in the neighborhood think there was somebody watching his car so the hubcaps didn't go missing. Do, do you know, to, listen, I'm, I'm, we're talking about us and we're talking about with two Brooklyn guys, the famous steak place. Peter Luger's okay. in right. Williamsburg. You used to go. Now, with things are fancy. Everything's gentrified. There's a parking lot. It's safer. You used to go, and you used to have to give the guy a $5 bill, the old man sitting in front of the restaurant, mm-hmm. because if you left it there... And he was not watching a car when you walked out of the place. It was on four mill boxes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. The city has changed. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you. Now Williamsburg is a neighborhood that you can't afford to live in. Listen, I went to high school at Brooklyn Tech. Okay. I, I, I think Spike Lee once, because I think he, his, his parents were from, from, were from that area. I think they, they bought a brownstone, which was maybe for $40,000 which grew to like four million dollars. I, I mean, people, you can't buy in that no. area. That's not that's Fort Green. A, yeah, Fort Green. Yeah. That well, that's the Fort Green area. Yeah, and then you know he was talking about that uh, Fort Green Park. It, it, it looked like the uh, the Kensington Dog Show. Or something. Oh my <laughs> God! And um, you know, it's just it's so gentrified now that uh, you know. I don't know where people that like us are living now. I mean, while we lived in the projects, there's still people living right. in the projects. But I don't know where the affordable housing is, and I still think that's one of the great crises of the city, and what which is going to make the city a two-tiered town because you're either going to be very poor or very rich to live here. It's it's really tough. I watch you know young people. I don't. They, I, they I, all have to live together. They they kick in a thousand dollars each to live in three bedrooms at Bushwick. Lexi, our producer, I, is smiling, laughing at me because she's doing the same thing. Listen, I've got two I married know. daughters. Okay, they're, they're in the thirties. I remember when they got out of college and they were first jobs and they were living in the city. They each had roommates, and uh, uh, first of all, a one bedroom apartment was cut into two bedrooms or a two was was divided into three and and you know you know what my first apartment i got out of college i was living on 53rd street between first and second now that's a pretty good area today it, it was great then 50 a big studio apartment with an alcove kitchen like really nice i mean it was big 210 a month mm. you can't park your bicycle for 210 a month the, yeah. the world has changed. And, and, and kids, I'll give you another example. When you and I started working, uh, I just wanted a job. I, I just wanted a job to start making my own money. In fairness to kids today, you know, we're talking about life's has changed, but in fairness to kids today, they start working. They got to worry about health insurance, 
you know, the medical insurance, you, oh. and your parents tell you, you you have to ask about those things. We were not concerned about those things. It, it's a different world for them. And plus the other thing, when you and I went to college, I mean, let's say you flunked uh, something or what, or first of all, a lot of people went to college at night, and I'm talking about even med school or law school went to college at night. Today, kids graduate. It is normal to graduate with a hundred grand in in student oh, loans. Easily a hundred grand in student Usually loans. Usually two. That's right. Usually two. Yeah. At least a hundred. I can't tell you how many interns have spoken to me. You know, well, I'm doing okay, Russ. And, you know, I'm going to make it, and I'm proud of them, and I've recommended them for jobs. But hundred and one hundred and sixty-five thousand in student You're loans. Paying off student loans until you get a half fare card for the subway. I, I, mean, I, I mean that. You know, when you talk about stuff that needs to be fixed in this country, that needs to be fixed. Yeah. The price of higher education well is absolutely, and, and it's prejudicial. But you know what? It's not just for lower income. The, the uh, uh, parents work their whole life busting their ass to make. It, it make ends meet for their kids, the kids to go to school, to do this and that, and they're paying loans up to yin yang. I mean, I go, to, I I went to CUNY and I teach at CUNY, and uh, you know, uh, uh, everybody in my family went to CUNY. So I, you know, I, I, to me, CUNY is still just a a great bargain and it has some some really good uh, teachers. But the uh, you know, and it's, and it's cheap. It's six grand compared to fifty thousand. Still other today, places, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, uh, so. I mean that is an alternative, and 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 the school is good, but a lot of people just want to get away and go to you know the, the whole thing is to be like like you make a school. It's almost like it's like making a sports a professional sports team or something. Yeah, so you, you feel compelled to go and take out a fifty thousand dollar loan. You, you know, when I was graduating high school back in the day, which was nineteen sixty nine, I graduated Brooklyn Tech, which was. To this day, it's still one of the better high schools in Absolutely. the country, public school. I had a brother who went there. Right. Not, your brother not only went there, wasn't he part of NASA? Yeah, he works for NASA. What, yeah. what worked for NASA. Okay. Yeah. I'm graduating. My father was dying at the time. You know, I'm living in a housing project. And, you know, I remember my parents, because we didn't have a car. And my parent, my mother said to me, you know, Russ, if, if you want to stay home, you know, we'll, we'll make ends, we'll manage to get you a car, you know, because my father was sick. And I said, Ma, you know what? If God forbid something's going to happen, I'm a plane ride away. I, I just felt I needed to get away. But I, I went to college because somebody invited me. You know, I went up to see the school. I went to college in Montreal. Room Loyola. So the people used to say, what's what's a Jewish guy doing in, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, a, a Jesuit college? And, you know, right, right away my father says, that's where he's going because the priest won't take any crap. <laughs> you, know, you know, they're not burning draft cards. Dad, it's it's Canada. They're not, they're, they're, you know. You know. <laughs> <have> draft <laughs> but, but room, board, and tuition, a beautiful school. Room, board, and tuition, $1,350. Room, board, and tuition for the year. My mother, let her rest in peace, used to send me because my father died just before I was going to college. Room, uh, my mother used to send me $65 a month. Why 65? Because at that time, the Canadian dollar was worth more than the American dollar. So the 65 came into 60, and I had $15 a week spending money. Plus, uh, what I can hustle Living on. Living large, plus. Living large, <laughs> and plus what I can hustle on my own. Yeah. And you know what, then? We were happier than yeah. a pig in slop. Well, I was, you know, I, 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 as I said, I went to, I went to uh, Staten Island Community College and Enrichment College before they merged into the College of Staten Island, and it was a, it was a great experience. I, I, I took filmmaking and studied literature, and, and uh, you know, I, uh, I came out and made money and uh, made a living in journalism, writing, uh, publishing ten novels and writing movies. I mean, so I, you know, I got that from going to CUNY. I didn't. I didn't go to NYU. I have a daughter who went to NYU. I didn't go to NYU. I, it wasn't even in. It wasn't even discussed. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, it was. You know. You. You guess you go into community college. Yeah. You know? I mean. I'm, that was. And quite frankly, so many kids that we knew mm-hmm. went to community yeah. college. And and you know what? If, if parents and kids are listening to this right now. There still is no shame in going no, to community college. Not. Take care of the two years. You, you know. So you're not. 
it doesn't strangle you with what you're going to have to pay when you get into that better school. But there's nothing wrong with going to a community college. When I got out of college, I had $1,500 $1, in student loans. <laughs> <laughs> and I used that to have parties. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to get back to the education thing, but, but you know, we also were talking about the newspapers. And I, I want to ask you this. I have a theory. I, I don't think I've ever discussed it with you. I feel this way. I think, and we all know that the newspapers are in trouble. The newspaper industry yeah. is in, in dire straits. And I feel one of the reasons is in dire straits, they've done it to themselves. Why do I say that? If all the newspapers, for example, like you, we talk about the Times, the Post, the Daily News, whatever the hell else there is, um, if they all could have gotten together and said, look, let's all agree, and maybe this is naivete on my part, but maybe if they would have said to one another, you know, let's not put any of our stuff out on the Internet. Let's let's not have our news, what we are right. Let's not have it on the Internet. Let's all agree that we're going to stick together on this. And the reason I'm saying that they make they would make the people buy the newspapers. Is that being naive on my part? Yeah, because what happened was that they, uh, that new ventures started online, just like the Huffington Post that were only online and Slate magazine and, and, and uh, uh-huh. the Daily Beast and all of that. So if you weren't online, so you people had... were going to get their news for free online and just ignore you altogether. So the only way to catch eyeballs and to try to and try to chase the, the dollar was uh, by putting your own paper online. Now the the papers that the the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all have made a lot of money by putting it, putting up a paywall online right. where you have to pay to read it, right? You know, or you have to be a subscriber, which gives you the password to read it online. Uh, Newsday does it in Long Island. I don't know if they're making money off it, but I know I know that Wall Street Journal has a specified kind of audience. But the Washington Post and New York Times, they it saved those two newspapers. That they, going online saved those papers and made them. They're now in profit. They're you know interesting. I think Trump helped that. <laughs> he has helped solve a lot of uh, uh, hey, a lot of papers. You know what you want the reality you, show is. L- listen, let me tell you something. You, uh, oh, he you, sells papers. He he sells papers and news. He helps the news the news industry, electronic and print. That's for sure. And it's symbiotic. I mean, yes. they 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 got him elected, and they gave him. They covered everything he did. Whether he thinks it's fake news or not, they got him elected. No, and he loved. It. I mean, he loves attention. So. He, every single rally, every single comment, every single tweet was covered. And so he didn't have to pay any money for advertising. He didn't need any Trump commercials. He was on the air constantly. So, I mean, you know, on all the cable news all day long, on all the network news all day long. He was in every in the front page of every newspaper every single day, which he always wanted to be. He used to call up places like the Daily News and pretend that he was, you know, his own press agent and pitching stories about who he was sleeping with, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, to say that he doesn't like the media is crazy. He's a media creation. Uh, but, you know, so, it, but it is symbiotic. I mean, he benefited from it and they benefited from him. And then, you know, we are where we are now. I mean, you know, he, he has found it convenient to label them as the enemy. Because it, it works with his base, but you know he still you know he still calls up the New York Times. He call he, you know when he wants to do a major interview, he calls up the New York Times. You know so he still talks to Maggie Haberman or somebody who used yeah. to work for the Daily News. Is that right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And her 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 brother Zach Haberman is like the the city editor, the managing editor. Wait, wait get, get, you mentioned something. You know, people like you teach journalism, but you also teach. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Screenwriting? Yeah, I teach screenwriting at uh, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, College. Brooklyn College. Has its own cinema school, a graduate school, and it's located down at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It's a wonderful facility with all uh, the, the most modern technology, motion capture, and animation. And you know, uh, I teach screenwriting there because I've written several movies, and um, it, it's it's amazing to go into these classes. I have I had a screenwriting class last year where there was a woman writing a script that took place in Lahore in Pakistan. Let, Another let me, one in let China. Me, I just want to interrupt you for one second. Are most of your students, because this is a graduate class, are most of your students lower income kids from the city or? 
Uh, no, actually, uh, I had uh, kids that were, you know, who graduated from Sarah Lawrence, Harvard. Oh, wow. Uh, Columbia, all, all kinds of, but it, when they wanted to go to graduate school, they were already in debt from undergrad. And to go to NYU, to go to NYU to Tisch, you would have had to spend another $60,000 a semester. So at CUNY, it's 16 for graduate school. And, you know, and they, we have, you know, the guy, you know, we have people that uh, have made movies and that uh, have written movies like myself who are actually teaching the craft. And uh, so they, they get a, a really, Terrific education for a whole lot less money, and it's located right next to this Diana studio. So all the movies and TV shows that are being made all around us, right down there. So, <clears throat> so, so great environment. W- w- when you're teaching, li- listen, uh, covering the streets, being a newspaper writer is one thing. As you said, get on comfortable shoes, go out and and do your thing and talk to people. <clears throat> Excuse me, but w- screenwriting. How do you teach a kid, a young person, to be a screenwriter? Well, it's a craft, and, and as is journalism. But <laughs> the thing, the thing that you can't teach is imagination, and you can't teach passion. But you can certainly teach the craft. It's an actual craft, and you. And I, I started with last year in a, in a course called Narrative Structure, where I went back and made them all read Plato's Poetics, so that you know, the, the basic principles of drama. Have not changed over the years. There's like 36, you know, uh, uh, plot lines really that we also, you know, reinvent, and and there, it, there's a uh, a process and, and a formula for writing a screenplay. I mean, you know, the, the, it has to, a movie has to capture your imagination in the first seven minutes, and by the end of 15 minutes, we have to know what the character is after. But but there has to be, a, and then there's an act change at, at at the end of Act One has to end a big dramatic turn. The second act is is all kinds of conflict, and and then the third act, which is about ninety pages in, is goes re- resolution in, in the last thirty pages. You want you want to, and that hasn't changed. But it, and there's ways to 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 teach that in a classroom, um, and to teach people how to shorten their dialogue and 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 even their description to make a movie to make a screenplay pop and move because it, we call them movies because they move but you want a screenplay to move too because you don't want to sit there and be you know be weighted down with too many words you want the thing to move and pop along you know? do, do you talk to the kids you know students kids uh do, do you talk to them you, you know because listen they're all they want to be in movie makers do you tell them listen you can still movies can still be made the acting is the thing. And the reason I say that, the other night, I happened to catch it at, at its very beginning. I've seen it several times. It, it was on, you know, my favorite channel, TCM, 12 Angry Men. You know, the one with Henry Phenomenal. Fonda and, 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 and Lee J. Cobb and Ed Begley and Martin Pulse. It was a who's who cast. And basically, Jack Klugman, Jack Warden, it's a who's who's cast, 12 men sitting in a room. You know, it's a jury, 12 men sitting in a room. And, and I looked and I, I, I called my wife, I called my wife in and she had seen it. And I said, but this is the clear cut example of you don't need to, it doesn't, you don't need the bells and whistles. You just need the script and the people carrying out the script. Well, it starts with the script. Right. If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage is the, is the old uh, line. If you, if you, it starts with the screenplay. Everything else evolves around it um and if you have a, a you can't make a good movie with a bad script you can you can make, you really have to start with a with a with a screenplay that's that that's worthwhile and and then in the case of 12 angry men they happen to have the magic of Sidney Lumet directing it and then they had you know Henry Fonda and all that whole cast you just mentioned but it was Reginald. who who wrote it uh, uh Reginald what what's his name uh, um Rose? Yeah, Reginald Rose. Rose. And I interviewed him um, yeah. when they remade it. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I, I interviewed him when William Freakin remade it in 1998. And he t- I asked him what the genesis of it was. And he told me, uh, and I did this for the Daily News, you know. Um, and William Freakin is the, is the uh, he's a great film director who directed uh, The French Connection, which right. to me is the best cop movie ever made. But. Uh, and then he, he did this remake, but he, I interviewed Reginald Rose, and he, uh, I asked him, where did the, the geni- what was the genesis of the, the story? He said, I got called for jury duty. I went down to 100 Center Street, 
And I looked around and I said, boy, this is, we were all we were on a, a manslaughter case. And we were screaming and yelling at each other in the jury room. And I said to myself, you know, this would be a great idea for, for, really? for a television show. Because he was working on one of those Playhouse 90s or something like that. It was a one hour, I think it was CBS, actually. It was, it was a, one, a one hour one. I forget the name of the show. And uh, like Philco Theater or right. something like well, that. Well, we're dating ourselves, but yeah. before 12 Angry Men hit the big screen, wasn't it a Playhouse yeah. 90? Yeah, it was. It was in 1954, three years before that. It was a one-hour drama on television. And uh, he, he wrote the script for that. And Henry Fonda, uh, who was in it, said, you know, we should make a movie out of this. Can you expand the script to a full-length movie? And he said yes, and he did. Um, and, and it became a classic. It didn't make money when it first came out. But it became a cult classic over the years. Um, it won all kinds of Academy Awards. Um, but it, it was only after it announced that the, the awards that, that they it started to make. Success. The way you, you said that, you know, like he, he was in a was called for jury duty. I don't I'm not saying on the waterfront happened exactly that way. But what the genesis or the idea behind on the waterfront was, I wanted real people, and and they used a lot of real people. Oh, they sure did, and it was it was based on newspaper stories, by the way. They you know, ran in the Sun and won Pulitzer prizes, and the, and they brought in uh, Bud Schulberg, who had written uh, What Makes Sammy Run. Elia Kazan directed that, and he he wanted Bud Schulberg to uh, to come and write the script. And he promised him that it would be that he would be honor his script that he, he wouldn't Hollywoodize it, and so when when he wrote it, I mean, Bud Schulberg went around pretending to be a boxing promoter and walked around the docks in Hoboken on the west side of Manhattan, telling people all these uh, bullshit stories so he could get the real story, <laughs> and he and he got people to talk to him. Like I said, they started conversations. And he really got the the sense of what it was like and having to deal with the gangsters on the docks and all of that. And, and uh, so he wrote a, a tremendous screenplay. Well, is, is screenwriting, Dennis, to, is it similar? I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous craft. Yeah, it's storytelling. Uh, but, but do you need to do what you said to the to your students in the journalism class to get soft shoes? Did, do, to be a good screenwriter, do you also have to go out into the street and, and, and learn? Or, or base your first stories on personal experience so that you're an expert on. Don't And, you know, if you're going to... Or, or if you're going to do science fiction, make sure it's your own and not derivative. But there's a, there's a thing. I mean, in the beginning, all writers emulate, and, and then you're supposed to, uh, you know, uh, imit you imitate, then you emulate, and then you surpass. You should, and when you find your own voice, you should be on your own. But that's what school is for. It's okay to do that in student films. I, I, I heard, I, I heard this. It, it just, it just flashed in my mind the way you, you described that. I guess that goes into a little bit of with acting, not that you're teaching an acting class, but I, I remember two people distinctly, um, Billy Bob Thornton. Right. Uh, I remember him being interviewed, and, you know, he's from Arkansas. And he good said, you know, very good actor. And he said, listen, you know, uh, Sling Blade and uh, he wrote that. Right. Directed yeah. And, and won, won yeah. the Academy yeah. Award. Um uh, Sling Blade and, and what was it, Monster or Monster Ball? I think it's Monster uh, Ball. Monster yeah. Ball uh, with Heath Ledger and um, oh, um, black actress who won, she won the Academy Award. Beautiful, oh. beautiful girl. Oh, she's beautiful. What's her name? Oh, that's terrible. I forgot her name. Um, I'll remember. But he said he's from. He says I know from these people. You know, like I know, so I know how to act like that. And Hillary Swank, you know, she's from a trailer park. Yeah, and it's no secret that w why she won for Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, because she knew how she. she, she it was kind of in in their blood. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you can cast things where you get people that have a familiarity with the, with that world, you will certainly um, uh, you know benefit from it. I mean, I always thought that when you have uh, a screenplay with a 718 area code, don't cast actors from area code 818, you know, <laughs> which is Hollywood, you know. So you make sure that you get people that sound like New York to, to be in it uh, <clears throat> when you get these kind of blonde uh, underwear model types that, you know, that they want to cast, you know, and then tell, make you think that they're that it's a New York story. It doesn't work. Yeah, there's a thing, you, you know, and I say this all the time. You need to know who you are. Yeah. 
You know, when they were doing the French Connection, speaking of Billy Freakin, long before Gene Hackman was cast, they were going to go with, they turned down, the studio turned down Jackie Gleason. And uh, uh, Billy Freakin was upset about that. He really wanted Jackie Gleason to play Popeye Doyle. Really? Yeah. And then they want, and then he, they were going to use Jimmy Breslin. And they were going to, and Breslin was the leading character to play Popeye Doyle. Uh, up until the, Billy Freakin found out that Jimmy Breslin did not know how to drive. <laughs> so he couldn't, couldn't possibly have done the great chasing in that movie. But, but you know, I mean, I, I, he doesn't get enough credit, let him rest in peace. Uh, Jackie Gleason was a very good actor. Tremendous. A, a very, very good actor. But I just, when you see Popeye Doyle, <laughs> I mean... N- Hackman. Yeah, I mean, it was just... Uh, Hackman didn't like the character, didn't like, you know, he thought he was a racist and he didn't want to play him and all that. And they had, they had a, a tough tough time with it. And at the time... Halle, Halle, Halle Berry. Halle I, Berry. I just came yeah. into my mind. Halle Gorgeous. Berry. It was driving yeah. beautiful girls. Yeah. But at the time, Hackman was was a struggling actor who was living with another struggling actor named Bobby Duval and another struggling actor named Dustin Hoffman. That's not the a bad trio. No, those are the three guys. They made out okay. You're talking about roommates. <laughs> they were struggling actors who, who were waiters in Manhattan and, you know, living in a roach-infested dump. And, uh, you know, all three of them became Academy Award winning. Think about that. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, they should put a plaque outside that apartment building, well, whatever the hell it was. I mean, th- when you think about three guys like yeah. that, just, yeah. well, look, again, you're here and it is still Brooklyn that w- you and I, we, you and I, talk, when we talk, it's always, it always reverts back to when we were kids. Yeah, like the Mets have. <laughs> <They've> re- <laughs> it's 1962 all, all over all again. All over again, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting on the roof with my old man with the, with the Panasonic transistor with the with the antenna pointed towards the Empire State Building to pick up the signal. Now, now, <laughs> now you see, me, it was a different story because mine were the L.A. Dodgers. I would religiously fall asleep every night with the transistor radio and the earplug in my ear and... Yeah. My mother or father would walk in and have to take it out of my ear because I had fallen asleep because the game was first starting at 11 o'clock New York time. Yeah, well, my old man was a fanatical Dodger fan. He became an American by rooting. He, you know, my dad was from the, from the other side. He was from Belfast, Northern Ireland. He was a soccer player and a boxer. And, you know, and then he um, he lost his leg in a, in a terrible accident playing soccer. He got... He got uh, uh, sepsis, and they had to take his leg off in Kings County. But he grew up as a big sports fan, and becoming a Dodger fan made him an American by learning the game, and all the intricacies of that game. It's very hard for an immigrant to understand all those rules. Right. I mean, uh, my mom never understood a single bit of it, but uh, uh, but my dad and loved the Dodgers, rooted for the Dodgers, lived and breathed the Dodgers, read the sporting news religiously to get every single word about them, and then when they left New York. Well, my brothers and I, we all thought that there was this great evil person named Son of a Bitch O'Malley. We thought that was the guy's name. <laughs> that Son of a Bitch O'Malley. That's all we would hear all around that. Because, you know, one of his own, you know, an Irishman took my my dad's beloved American baseball team out of Brooklyn and brought them out to L.A. And the thing about the, thing about the Dodgers then, which people don't remember, um, they they really were part of the neighborhood. I mean, they took, they they lived, they lived in Bay Ridge, they lived in the areas, they took the train. Robinson lived on Brooklyn Avenue. You you know, uh, let him rest in peace, Gil Hodges, Joan Hodges, who uh, today I remain very close with her, she still lives in their house on Bedford Avenue. And then when the Mets happened, I live in Bayside, Queens. Uh, Tom Siebel lived in Bayside. You know, I mean, and people used to come all day long and Bring balls and give them to to his wife, and then when he would uh, he would come home, he would sign them all, and you would have to go back the next day to go and collect the ball. And all those people in Bayside, I didn't grow up there, but I know these guys. They all they would go and they still have those balls. Really? Yeah, he was terrific to the people, kids in the neighborhood. But now Bayside was a little upscale for guys like me and you, wasn't it? Yeah, (laughs) I I didn't even hear of it. That was like when I was a kid living in a tenement. I used to watch TV. I would say, "Leave it to Beaver and my three sons." I used to say. Where is this? Where do these people live where they have 
backyards and driveways and I it was just, it was just on TV. It was just on TV. Like yeah. like Leave It to Beaver, Ward Ward and Ward Cleaver uh, never didn't exist. I mean, I would watch it religiously, but I didn't. It was like another planet. It was like science fiction. <laughs> sure wasn't like Brooklyn. Not no, no. Brooklyn, to, 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 to us, what was real was the Bowery Boys with yeah. Leo Gorsi and, and the Honeymooners and the Honeymooners. The Honeymooners. You, you, you know, but it's funny that you say that the, the Honeymooners and. Uh, my wife has a friend, very good friend, and we were talking once, and, and, and she made the comment, oh, I don't understand how anybody liked that show, because to, to me, I found it depressing. And I, I said, what do you mean you found it depressing? Because it takes place in, in one room, and they didn't have anything. And I was kind of shocked. Because the girl, the woman who said that was a girl. love. No, no, but but the girl who said that came from very modest means, didn't have anything growing up, and she did well for herself, and she had all earned it. And I said, we all grew up that way. I, I mean, what you just said, they had love, and it was they stuck together, they hustled, it, they just made things work. They laughed at their. Um, misgivings, if you will, or... Years later, when they remade, they made a feature film, and made it an all-black honeymooners version. Wasn't that with Cedric, 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 who's a very talented guy, yeah, funny very. guy. And I, I went back to the street where Jackie Gleason grew up, and to the where the apartment building was. In Bensonhurst. No, it wasn't. No, it's, it was it's in Bedford Stuyvesant. But... And on Halsey Street, right? And because they use that. Oh no, I'm talking about the name of where he lived in in, yeah, in they, the honeymoon. They, but they they mixed it up. They said Bensonhurst, but it was it was actually then they, for years they said it was Bushwick. It's actually in Bedford Stuyvesant, right. and that block where he lived, where his old man walked, went to the store one day and never came back, and left him and his mother alone, <clears throat> um, had been torn down, but the house next to it was exactly the same. And I talked to all the people on the block, and they were all African-American, and I was asking them about They said, oh, yeah, that's where Jackie Gleason lived. And we, they were all Honeymooner fans. They all And they all had favorite episodes. Oh, the- they all said that the street should be renamed for Jackie Gleason. And they all they all, they said, well, you know, we'll probably go to see that movie, but it can't possibly be as funny as the original. They should have left it alone. What, what was the name of the street? It was uh, Halsey Street. Oh, yeah. And uh, I forget the exact address, but it's in my old column. If you Google my name and the honeymooners, you'll probably find the, the old column. And all the, even the crossing guard in the corner, everybody, they all were, they started to laugh when they would say their favorite episode, either the sleepwalking one or the, you know. The yeah, one my mind was Captain Video yeah, yeah. or the golfing. Hello, yeah. ball. Yeah, it was just <laughs> endless. But they all loved it the same way as everybody else. And, and Jackie Gleason, you know, found humor. In the squalor that he grew up in, and, and that's where his, you know, that, that's where things began for him, and and it was his most successful uh, skit of all. It started as a as a skit on Cavalcade of Stars, and then it became uh, a weekly series. And I inter, inter uh, I interviewed uh, the last the uh, Joyce Maynard, what was the name? Joyce Randolph, the the one who played Trixie. Trixie. Yeah, she was the last living one. I think she's still alive. Um, I interviewed her, and she was you know, she was a character. She said that uh, Jackie never socialized with anybody, and he was a perfectionist, and he drove the writers insane. Um, but he would remember, he had a photographic memory, and you had two days to remember the entire thing and perform it in front of a live audience. And look what they got. Uh, and y- 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 you know, You know what you said? They had love, and, and when you look at it, it it was simple. It wasn't complicated. It, love and friendship. It made love and friendship, and, and the value of it. And chase, it was one person on the on the street said, "We're still chasing the same dollar that Ralph and Ed were chasing fifty years." No, ago. no, you're a hundred. <laughs> and that's what. Listen, yeah. I don't remember. I don't rem, let my father rest in peace. He always had two jobs, and more times oh. than not, he had three jobs. And you know what? That was the norm. And I guess we're sounding like two old farts here talking. But that's what was the Brooklyn that yeah. we grew up in. And, yeah, and sure. we're talking about the honeymooners. That's what it's about. Maybe, as you say, maybe it was just a simpler time. Maybe that's what it was about. And, and things with now is a lot more complicated. But it's a timeless, it's a timeless comedy because yeah. it was about, it was the first show really about working people. Yeah. You know, Jackie Gleason played Life O'Reilly on TV for a while. Yep. And, but, and which was just not as funny. But 
Because that, that wasn't him. This one was, was really based on his life. Well, Dennis, I got to tell you, this... Uh I'm looking at the clock. I mean, you and I can go for. Three. We're not done yet. No, no, we? We, we we can go for three more hours. But I'm going to have to pull. I'm going to have to pull the plug right now. Okay. This has been absolutely been a, a joy. fun time on the stoop. And, and you know what, buddy? We're going to do the stoop again. Okay, All right. Yeah. I'll, you, you got an open invitation, and I hope you'll accept. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, my great Thank thanks you. to Dennis Hamill. And uh, listen, I want to thank to all of you for getting a load of this today. Now I like. Uh, get a load of you. Let me know uh, your thoughts. You can contact me on Twitter at Russ Salzberg or on Facebook. You can also get a load of my website. Uh, real easy. Just go to russsalzberg.com. My thanks today to my producer, Lexi Pevararo, to uh, WABC uh, 77 WABC News Director Craig Schwab, Assistant News Director Matt Dahl, and as always, Use people out there, because without use people, I'd have nobody to talk to. So until next time, it is yours truly saying to use people. It's Russ Salzberg saying you, bidding you a bye-bye, so long, and farewell. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.